Hey everybody, Chris here. In the US, we celebrate our Independence Day on the 4th of July. And I think many Americans would associate the word freedom with that holiday. But we understand that words can take on a different meaning for different folks with different experiences. So throughout this month, we're showcasing some of our favorite episodes from the Plugtone Audio Collective, along with new reflections from the podcast hosts about how their episode relates to this idea of freedom. All right, let's get into it. Hey y'all, it's Emily Holland, creator and producer of the Nature Untold podcast. I hope your summer is going well. When the Plugtone team and I decided that the theme for July for this channel would be freedom, I immediately thought of the very first episode I put out for Nature Untold. My interview with skier, writer, general great human, Patty O'Connell. In this episode, Patty talks about how helpless he felt in his addiction and how he came out of it with the help of his friends and family. He also talks about what it felt like to get sober and to have those first few powder ski days on the mountain. He calls it pure, unadulterated fun. I call it freedom. Many of the stories on Nature Untold share this type of revelation, feeling so pushed down, trapped, depressed, confined in their addictions or their troublesome relationships with whatever ails them. I felt it myself too. But there seems to be this shift, this moment that each guest has where they look up from their life after having done the hard work of recovery and realize, wow, I'm me again. I'm free to be me again. For Patty, as he shares in this episode, sobriety has allowed him to be his full self and feel full joy. And that's a beautiful thing. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Nature Untold podcast from early 2021 with Patty O'Connell. You know, I was gaining some like self-confidence. I was like, you know, gaining some esteem through like esteemable acts and I felt good. And I was, and I was surrounded by these people who had tons of wisdom and not just that, but they had true real joy in their eyes mm. and they weren't using and they weren't drinking and they were just plugged in and tapped into life. And I was like, I want that. And that for me has been like what recovery has been all about. It's like, how can I get tapped into life as unfiltered and as unadulterated as I possibly can? And then how can I help others get that too? This is the Nature Untold podcast. And I'm your host, Emily Holland. This podcast is about all kinds of sobriety, addiction, recovery, as they intersect with the outdoor community and industry. Welcome to the show. This podcast is sponsored by the Cairo Lab. Based in Boulder, the Cairo Lab's mission is to utilize the body's inner potential for self-healing and self-correction. Dr. Ellen Kindlesberger offers a one-stop shop for all personal training and rehabilitation needs. Personal training and rehab can be done in person or remotely, whatever is most convenient for you. Check out more at thechirolab.com and start getting your body back to its full performance ability. This podcast is sponsored by UST Gear out of Columbia, Missouri. 
Over 80 years old, UST Gear has reinvented themselves in 2020, as many of us have. Their renewed vision is focused on creating outdoor gear that allows everyone to enjoy the activities in the great outdoors. And storytelling is at the core of everything that UST does. So we're excited to partner with them because that's what the show is all about, telling stories and creating community. We'll be sharing more about their journey and focus throughout the coming episodes. For now, check them out at ustgear.com or on Instagram at ustgear. And stay tuned to learn more about their brand journey. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to the Nature Untold podcast. I'm Emily Holland, your host. This episode has Patty O'Connell on it. Patty is a writer, he's a podcast host, he's a skiing enthusiast, and he's also a big old nerd, just like me, which you'll hear more about in a little bit. In this episode of Nature Untold, we talk about the Marvel Universe, obviously. We talk about what life was like growing up in an Irish family in Chicago, his gift of gab, eruptions of unadulterated joy, the moments that led up to Patty confronting his addictions, the importance of supportive and loving community, and where he is at today, and where the outdoor community and industry still has some work to do. I did just want to mention before we jump into the episode that there are mentions of sexual abuse and suicidal ideation in this episode. So if that's something that's triggering for you, I just want you to be aware up front before we go into the conversation with Patty. Please enjoy our conversation with Patty O'Connell. All right, and welcome back to the show. Today we have Patty O'Connell. Hi, Patty. How you doing? Howdy. I'm doing well. Thanks. For I like me. how you waved, and this is an audio medium. I know. I well, you know, I kind of. <laughs> I, I feel like I. It's the. Uh, <laughs> it's a good way to say hello, friends at home. If you can't hear me, I just waved to you. I'm also hugging. <laughs> Oh, gosh. <laughs> I'm also hugging you. All right. Yeah. Such a good start. So, all right. When we talked before we started recording today in our last conversation, we spent about 25 minutes, I would say, talking about the Marvel Universe. Oh, yeah. So, I am a nerd. Yeah. You, I've watched a lot of interviews with you in preparation, yeah. and oh, you have so much pop culture knowledge. It is <laughs> mind blowing. How do you retain that? I don't know how taxes or math works and <laughs> everything else that should be in there. Like everything I should know as an adult human person uh, is filled up with like references to 80s and 90s film and music and other silly things. I don't know why it's in there. I know that I love it. I know that it makes me feel good. Um, <laughs> there's a lot. There is a lot. And it goes deep. Yeah, it does go deep. I was like, oh, this guy can like play ball. We talked about Marvel. We talked about Star Wars. And I was like, I am grossly out of my league here in this conversation. Fine. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I would say grossly out of your league. I would say that just you've discovered that how gross of a nerd I am. <laughs> Basically, my brain is like the the like 90s fleece of the world. You know, just like, Is that cool. I don't know, but um, maybe we should investigate more. <laughs> yeah. Well, knowing that you know so much about the Marvel universe and all, everyone listening is probably like, okay, Emily, shut up. You're a nerd. Okay. We get it. <laughs> but 
Who would you be in the Marvel universe if you could? Like, if you could be one of the characters in the universe, who would it be? Oh my God. I mean, how do you even answer a question like that? I don't know. We're here asking the hard hitting questions. This is the hard hitting stuff. Really? I was hoping for some softballs like up front. This is really difficult. Well, I guess, I don't know. I've, I've, I've kind of always loved Spider-Man. Like I have had this Spider-Man pillow that has went to college with me and it's mm-hmm. gone on all sorts of, you know, outdoor adventures with me. Cause I, I camp with a pillow cause I enjoy being comfortable. So maybe Spider-Man, but I don't know. I mean, much like most kids who grew up in the nineties with the X-Men uh, cartoon, which not only has like possibly the greatest theme song of all time, uh, <laughs> but it's just great because it's like, the, finally the comics came to life, you know, Wolverine. I love, I just, I loved Wolverine always. So yeah. I guess, I guess Wolverine, but I, I feel like, see, I don't want to, I feel like I'm in a box. I feel like I'm pigeonholed here. I don't know. You uh, just hang up. <laughs> yeah, 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 That's it. I'm, I'm done. Uh, I would either Spider-Man or, uh, or Wolverine. I guess. Okay. I'll take that. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. That's fine. I can see both. Okay. We'll leave it there for people who are like, all right, get on with it. But we didn't come here for Marvel, you nerds. This is going to be, it's going to be three and a half hours of a weird thing. Seven hours later. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. So I think that maybe we'll get into real questions now. So who is Patty? Who's Patty O'Connell? Well, my name is Patty O'Connell. Most people call me Patty O. I'm a skier, I'm a mountain biker. I love all things in the mountains. I'm also like through to my core, a Chicago Irishman. I talk with long vowels and love bratwurst uh, and sausage of all kinds. <laughs> and uh, um, I'm a professional word nerd and chit chatter. And I am also uh, an alcoholic and a drug addict who has been fortunate enough to, to be in recovery for uh, going on uh, close to seven and a half years now. And I hope that continues for a lifetime because I sure as shit want it to and I work at it every day. So, mm. and I like to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> is, that a, nice. is that enough? That's good. That's a great okay. introduction. Yeah. So a Chicago Irishman. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So what is growing up in Chicago in an Irish family look like? Cause we kind of have the stereotypes of like the Boston Irish families. Right. Like we, we all know what those are like. So what is, what is growing up in Chicago for the O'Connells look like? Well, I grew up in a, in a neighborhood that had uh, a ton of Irish kids, Irish American kids, you know, like I, I went to a, a Catholic grade school. I was one like in a, in a class of like 36, I was one of five Patrick's the only Patty though. <laughs> Patrick is, is the, uh, something that maybe my grandmother calls me. My mom calls me when I'm in trouble, but I'm always Patty. Uh, I've got two older brothers and uh, a younger sister. My mom and dad are Mike and Molly, Sean, oh Brendan, Patty and Kitty, you know, it's oh a big family. We're super loud. We laugh a ton. Um, my siblings are among my very best friends. And whenever I think of my childhood and growing up, I think of just like really fun times, you know, a lot of team sports, big family gatherings, a lot of love, a lot of hugs. You know, the Irish stereotypes are probably true for my family. <laughs> we're loud, we're boisterous, uh, we can brood <laughs> um, if the dark clouds roll in. I think. Uh, a lot of the way that we deal with any kind of like hardship or dark times is, uh, is through humor. Mm. So I think, I think when people, uh, people have asked me, they're like, 
because you know I have the 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 God given gift of gab and and uh, a quick wit, and people have asked me like, oh, like, did have, have you done stand up or where did that come from? And honestly, it's like the battleground and the training ground from for that is like the dinner table among my my cousins and uh, my siblings, and my parents. Like everybody's so quick, and everybody's wanting to like get the next like funny little jab in or, or uh, observational humor or something like that. So it's kind of just like a tornado of noise where nobody, it's almost like nobody's breathing because everybody's talking all at once. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, that is a lot, but it sounds beautiful. It sounds like quintessential, honestly, um, when you're thinking about like suburban growing up. And I wonder though, now that you're a skier, you're a huge skier, right? Like obviously you write a lot about that. You talk a lot about it. It's a big part of your life. Did you find that in skiing, you could find stillness, which is maybe something you didn't necessarily find in, in the household growing up? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe if you ever went skiing <laughs> with me, you'd be like, there is no stillness in this. <laughs> I'm I thinking of like the, you know, like crisp snow right. and ice and like the flow of being, you know, individual. Yeah. In your movement. I think, I, I think that something I love about, uh, something I love about skiing is, is the fact that it's the greatest individual team sport that there is. <laughs> and so I think there are moments, you know, where I'll stop, like even on a trail run or a bike ride or something like that, right. I'll stop in the trees and either to catch my breath or just take a moment. And I do appreciate those moments of, of stillness. But for me, those, those moments outside are, are a lot about like eruptions of unadulterated joy. And like Whitman says, like the barbaric yaw, you know, like I will scream very loudly, especially if it's a, like a very deep powder day. And I will express, pronounce and announce my joy. <laughs> so stillness, I don't know. Um, I think I, uh, you know, I, I have a bit of a, a novice entry into a, a meditation practice. And maybe that's where I find some stillness or I find some stillness in you know, when I'm talking to my fellows about recovery, or I'm talking with my therapist or my mentor or friends and family about, you know, certain things. But I think in skiing, in skiing for me, that is a, uh, uh, that's, that's time for like eruptions and joy and elation and and screaming and hooping and hollering and high fives and hugs. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Still this man, it, once, once we go skiing together, you'll be like, oh, okay. Well, maybe I'm totally, I'm doing exactly what I never want people to do to me, which is project their, their things onto me. And I'm thinking (laughs) of my own skiing. I'm like, okay, I've been skiing 10 times and, um, I'm so beginner. So everyone leaves me and I'm on, you know, the really easy terrain. And so I, maybe I'm thinking of it as like, Oh, it's so still and like such a meditative. <laughs> it's so still thing. because I want to think I'm of it as meditative. Because honestly, I'm just lonely because these <laughs> jerks that I've come with have left me. Who are you skiing with? What jerks are you skiing with? I know, with? I know. Jerks. <laughs> Jeez. Gotta I'm, I'll call them out by name in the intro. Yeah, exactly. um, <laughs> so okay, so obviously big skier now. Love yeah. it so much. Yeah. So when you move to Telluride, I think there's like three mm-hmm. days of skiing under your your belt at that that point. So what makes you say, you know what, I'll just move to this town that's like known for skiing and and live there. Much like my mustache, skiing came to me later in life, but it was always kind (laughs) of in there somewhere, just waiting to to bloom, to flower. Great Uh, metaphor. So (laughs) 
I like right after college, uh, I had graduated. I was an English lit major. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do for a job. I thought about going into teaching. So, you know, I got, I got a, a teacher's assistant job in an elementary school. Cause I didn't want to just like jump in, you know, and go back to school for my teacher cert without kind of testing the waters a little bit. And by springtime, after almost a year, I had done some things that I was really proud of. And I was like, had felt accomplished in certain areas, but more than, more than anything else, I, I was really like unfulfilled. I just wasn't really psyched on it. I knew I didn't want to be a teacher. And I found myself, honestly, I was saying no a lot to the kids. So I was kind of like getting pretty bummed out. And at the same time, my, one of my best friends, uh, Scotty P was living back in Indianapolis where we went to school and he was kind of being, you know, or feeling unfulfilled, uh, in his job in, uh, real estate. And our friend Adam had moved right after college had moved to Telluride and started driving cats, was grooming at night and skiing every day. And we were like, what is this? Like, you know, we didn't ski. We weren't skiers. And he just decided to do this. And so Scotty and I chatted and Baz and I, or I'm sorry, Adam is also known as Baz. So (laughs) Adam and I, we were all chatting. He was like, come on out here. You know, you guys sleep on my couch. We can figure it out, sleep on my floor and, and just like, have a ski trip. And I was like, I don't know what a ski trip even is. So let's do it. So I went out there and I skied for the first time and fell in love with it. Even though my first run down the meadows in Telluride was, I, I went completely sideways, flew maybe 9,000 feet into the air, landed on my pole, snapped it in half, hurt my ribs. And I was like, okay, that was a rude awakening. But like, I think I dig it. You know, and like, and, uh, and then three days later, you know, I was like, Scotty and I were talking, it's like, God, wouldn't it be awesome to live in a town like this? Be, be surrounded by mountains like this, be surrounded by people like this and in a community like this and the feeling and the vibe. And, and then we were like, well, why don't we just move to this town instead of it? You know? And it was like, and also like, you know, as a 22, 23 year old young man who wants to simultaneously assert his manhood, but continue to play cops and robbers, like moving to a mountain town to ski bum is kind of like the perfect thing. So, uh, I went back home to Chicago. I got a, a, a couple extra jobs, bought my first ski setup. And then I moved out there that following October, Adam had vouched for me to, to get a job as a snowmaker and it's the classic ski bum story, you know, of like, Oh, well, I was going to stay there for, you know, the season. And then I moved there forever, you know? Yeah, and I, and I lived there until I was 29. And it was one of those like flag in the ground moments where you look back and mm-hmm. you say, this changed the course of my life forever. For sure. Yeah. Well, that's really beautiful. And it, it's, I, I think in this type of lifestyle, what I'm hearing from people is that it's clearer to see those moments of like switch in your life yeah. when you yeah. can look back and there's a little bit more clarity of mind. We'll come back to skiing probably. But before we get any further, I do want to just take a moment to ask you what your definition of addiction and recovery are, because I know they're wildly different for everyone. I just want to make sure we're talking about your particular circumstance. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if I have like, maybe like a great definition to go with. I do have my own experience, right. And that's, that's Mm -hmm. what we're talking about. You know, like I don't represent any any, any program myself as an individual, I don't represent any monopoly on recovery. All I represent is my own experience. And I hope for whoever's listening to this right now, it could shed some light and maybe it's going to help you. You know, I know for me that 
like I was predisposed, you know, it's in my DNA. I was born a drug addict and an alcoholic. It's just that it took me a while to find drugs and alcohol. But basically I think of uh, alcoholism and addiction as, you know, a constant search for an external force to cure an internal conflict. And that was my, that was my entire life. And then when I found booze and, and drugs as a teenager, I was like, oh my God. I finally feel okay. It's so easy to feel okay with this stuff. Mm-hmm. That is great, you know? And, and, and it's one of those things where, you know, I think a lot of people sometimes refer to alcoholism as like, oh, when I became an alcoholic in my 20s or something. And for me, that kind of definition doesn't really work because with my brain, then I would think then it was like something like, oh, well, if I just stop for a while, then this is about the amount of booze that I drank. Right. So if I just Mm -hmm. stop for a while, I can get back to that bus stop. And for me, it it was never about abstinence or willpower. It was, I, I needed, I needed a way to feel safe, amplify the good things and numb myself from anything bad that was happening both externally and, but mostly internally. Mm -hmm. If that, if that makes sense. Totally makes sense. And I think that's probably the crux of why a lot of people struggle, right? Is, you know, you, you, you said it so eloquently, you're using an external substance to solve an internal problem. So for you, when you're thinking about your internal conflict, you know, what does that actually look like? Well, you know, I mean, again, you know, like because of my DNA, I was predisposed with my family history, predisposed to depression and anxiety. And that showed up in different ways. Uh, as a kid growing up and, you know, a sense of like not, not feeling okay in social situations or feeling like I needed to act a certain way or, or that I wasn't okay. And a lot of that comes from the fact that around probably four years old, not a hundred percent sure of the timeline because it's been so buried, but around four years old, I was sexually abused by a neighbor who was a, a few years older than, than myself. And that didn't make me a drug addict and alcoholic. It didn't make me, you know, somebody who is, is slips easier into anxiety and depression. It sure didn't help because what that did was fuel this predisposition um, that said, you're not okay. Mm-hmm. You're unlovable. You're gross. Other people judge you. You know, it just gave me that it, it, it honestly, it acted almost like this invisible rudder for much of my life. And anytime it would come up, you know, in my head, I would push back down, kind of lock it in the basement. And mm-hmm. then when it was in drugs, I found a great way to just like numb it away for a long time. And then when it would rear its head again, you know, and get bigger and stronger, right? Avoidance never works, right? So it would get bigger and stronger and come up in different ways. That's, you know, when, when suicidal ideation kind of started showing up when I was around maybe fifth, sixth, seventh grade. And that kind of followed me through my twenties because that abuse, I never told anybody about that until I was 29. You know, I kept that a secret for 25 years and it influenced my life in, you know, almost an immeasurable way. I'm still doing, you know, digging things up with, you know, my therapist about, about that. I would say that, that event, I would say again, acted as that kind of like invisible rudder. It was great fuel for a monster that, that wanted me alone and angry and depressed and uh, suicidal, which Mm -hmm. is addiction and alcoholism kind of at its core. Yeah. Well, first I just want to pause and and thank you for sharing that and being you know, vulnerable with myself and then our, our audience as well. I feel like 
those are the ways in which people can finally feel comfortable sharing those types of traumas, um, whether it be in these types of formats or, yeah. or else. So thank you for that. And then I also, I mean, men, you know, men don't talk about it right. a lot. People don't talk about it a lot. Men definitely don't talk it a lot, uh, about it a lot. And I think that, I mean, for me personally, I definitely want to help as much as I can kind of normalize that conversation. And, and also every time I talk about it, it loses power over me. So it is, yeah. it does help. It does help me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not, I'm not like super altruistic about it too. Like it does help me. <laughs> yeah. Just to be clear. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that, you know, whether it be something like sexual abuse or another traumatic event, like mm-hmm. these keep coming up right. in in these yeah. conversations like that, Oh, I didn't realize I was pushing something down again and again and again until I, you know, had this, what I call a come to Jesus moment, you know, a a big moment where it kind of became glaring obvious to me. Why do we just keep pushing that stuff down? I mean, why does that happen over and over again? Mm, That's a good goddamn question. I mean, I don't know. I mean, for me, I was worried to talk about it out loud. I was worried of being judged. I was worried I wouldn't be able to survive it. Like when I, when I finally told my parents, when I was in treatment, I was worried it was going to break them, you know? And it was, it was one of the scariest things I've ever done. I think that's part of it. It's, it's also like admitting to it is, is scary. You know, it's like, uh, I'm a slave to sensation, man. (laughs) Like, you know, if it feels good, I want so much of it. And if it feels bad, I don't, I don't want any of it. And this, that felt bad. So I didn't want to deal, you know, I think that's probably the easiest way. Why, why anybody else says, I mean, probably something similar, but I don't know. I mean, that's, that's how it was for me for sure. So you're kind of carrying obviously the weight of like what it did to you, but then also the weight of like how it's going to affect your immediate family and and their relationship to their memories of your childhood and all of that as well. Sure. Sure. I mean, I was scared for my parents to talk to my parents about it, talk to my siblings about it, you know, like, but even with that, I, I still go, you know, I, I still see my childhood as this, like, as a happy time. And I think that's a testament to my family, which is not always the case in, in recovery. You know, it's like, I still felt, even though I felt gross, I felt unlovable. I still, I still was able to let some love in. Right. Mm -hmm. And I still was okay. And I didn't become a sexual deviant because of it. I didn't become a predator because of it. And I, and I have to say that was because of the family that I, that I come from. It's a, it's a super hard thing that I continue to deal with, but I, I think it has a lot less control over my life than it used to. I'm super glad to hear that therapy and is a beautiful thing amongst oh other my things. God, it is. <laughs> I just can't tell enough people to yes. go. I mean, please, everyone listening, try it out. <laughs> Even if you don't think you, you, you have to go, just go. It's so much fun. It's so great. Okay. So kind of going back to sort of the, the trajectory then of, you know, moving to Colorado and then, what we had talked about before too, is sort of like the moments, the, the, yeah. whether they be micro or macro, you know, the, the tipping points for you to realize like, okay, I need to do something about this. Well, I will, again, I wish it was some kind of like altruistic moment of like, you know, this was just really not working <laughs> out for me. It was finally like, uh, I was, I was kind of the last to know it was the only, I always kind of joke that like the only party I showed up, uh, late to 
was uh, the party of knowing that I was a drug addict and alcoholic who needed some serious help. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the last, I would say like year and a half of my use in Telluride was super scary. And never not once did I think, oh, I'm a drug addict and alcoholic. I really need some help. I always, you know, kind of saw it as like, you would drink too, if you had my experiences with work, or if you had my experiences with the gals that I was dating, or you had this or whatever it was, right? You know, and deep down, there was the trauma deep down, there was the suicidal ideation. And so my, the amount and frequency of use just kept getting more incredible. It was becoming very dangerous. And I think for some time in my 20s, you know, like the the respite the booze and drugs would give me probably helped me not kill myself, which is a weird thing to say. And I don't recommend it. <laughs> but but it's it's true. It's probably true of, of my life. And then I would have these, you know, these mornings where I would I would wake up and I would wonder, you know, is today going to be the day where I take a work truck and drive it off the side of the road? Or I would promise myself I would wake up and I'd, I'd be late for work again. I'd promise myself I'm not going to drink. And, you know, by noon, I would be thirsty. And then once I started drinking, I wanted to up the party. So I would get a bunch of drugs as much as I could. Again, I would wake up in the morning, feel guilty all over again. I would throw the drugs out and then I'd be taking my rent money out of the ATM to, you know, to score. And I was a, I was a barroom drunk. I was a blackout drunk. And it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And then finally, I was 29. Ski season had just ended. I just sent it the last few weeks of ski season in terms of of partying. And I was in a dark place. I was really on the edge of oblivion, like wanting to die, not wanting to kill myself or being too scared to kill myself, but wanting to die. Right. And uh, I, uh, on my way to fly to my best friend Adam's wedding in South Carolina, I stopped in uh, Chicago and uh, to meet my niece who was uh, two weeks old at the time. And uh, I freaked everybody out with the, I mean, I'd always been, you know, a boisterous guy when I came home, but the drinking was insane and, and I was insane at home. And then I, I went to South Carolina and I exploded at Adam's wedding and caused a mess. And he called my mom and dad. And he said, um, Patty is an alcoholic and he can't stop using cocaine. Scotty and Adam had, had sat me down a number of times that spring, that winter and talked to me like, dude, you gotta chill out. And I, I would promise them that I would, right. Mm. I could have passed a lie detector test that night, promising that I would never touch cocaine again, that I would stop drinking the, the amount of whiskey that I was drinking. And a week later, maybe less than that, I would be back at it. It was trying to like, it was like trying to hold on to water, right? It's just going to be through. I couldn't stop. And because I, I couldn't deal with life. So when Baz called my, my folks, when Adam called my folks, they obviously called me and confronted me over the phone. And I don't know how or why, but I got so freaked out and it was like the veil lifted. Hmm. And I was like, in my head, I didn't say it out loud. Uh, But in my head, I was like, I'm a drug addict and alcoholic. And I got really freaked out. And I knew if I flew back to Telluride with that knowledge and the guilt of what had happened at Adam's wedding, I was going to die. I was going to make sure of it. I was either going to drink myself to death or I was going to kill myself. And instead of doing that, my, my folks asked me to come home. 
for an intervention. I knew I was coming home for an intervention. They were going to take me to Hazelden in Chicago for like a survey to find out whether or not I was a drug addict and alcoholic. And it's like, I can tell you, I am. <laughs> um, and, and I flew home and, um, my, my siblings were all there. I crumpled into my brother Sean's lap on, on the green couch in my parents' living room in the house that I grew up in. And I bawled my eyes out and I just said, I don't know who I am. I can't stop drinking. I can't stop using drugs. I'm going to die. I, I don't know what to do. I don't know who I am. I kept saying that. And what, it, what was really happening there was like the, the walls of this um, lie that I had been protecting myself from and trying to, you know, use as this mask to go through life with were just crumbling around me. And I couldn't, I couldn't hold it up any longer. And I admitted to myself and I admitted to my family. And that right there was like, really like the first huge step, you know, my dad said, well, you go to treatment. I said, yeah. And then it started from there. And that was, uh, May 19th, 2013, which also happens to be my birthday. So, oh, yeah. Wow. Well, I'm Irish. We like to keep it very dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> like, align our anniversaries there. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I didn't want to have to remember too much. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to remember, you know, comic book pop culture yeah. and, you know, what Zach and say. Kelly were doing on that one episode of Saved by the Bell. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I was going to say like, yeah, numbers, not your strong suit. So you got to, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, there's so much there, um, that I, I feel like we can dive into, but I think the, the thing that really resonates with me is the community of love that you had around you, regardless of how you felt about yourself. And you know, that they, they reflected back to you basically what you seemingly didn't believe was true of yourself. And that is really beautiful. And I think that as much as people can, can control what they, who they surround themselves with and, and what type of support system they have, that's kind of the aim, right? Is to have people like that in your corner to show you the, all the good parts about yourself and why you're worth fighting for. Yeah. I mean, it was really like they, and, and, and I know how lucky I am and I'm very grateful for my family. And I feel very fortunate because that's not always the case in recovery that, Mm. that the family understands really, they, they held me together and protected me long enough to get me to a safe spot. They really saved my life. Adam saved my life by making that call without, without those things, right? Scotty P and, and his wife, one of my other best friends, Megan drove me to the airport, got me on the plane, got me safe, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. the call that Adam made my family, picking me up, my family holding, literally physically holding me together and getting me uh, to treatment in Minnesota. Like, you know, I wouldn't be here without these people. And along the way, all, all the people I was exposed to in the recovery world have just, this is not an individual effort, you know, Mm -hmm. for sure. So treatment, what does that Mm -hmm. look like for, for you in the beginning there? I know it's different for everyone and there's a lot of different facilities that people can go to. And, and, and I'm also interested in the tactical, right? Like I feel like when someone thinks if either, if they think they need treatment or if someone tells them that they need to go to treatment, it's like a lot of unknowns basically, because it's not like out in the open. So can you just talk through the process of, of getting there and obviously your family's bringing you, but beyond that. I went to a place in Minnesota, just outside of uh, St. Paul called the retreat. 
and it was a 30 day inpatient program. Um, we looked at a couple other, other facilities and had some, you know, kind of like investigatory phone calls with them. But I talked to this dude, Russell, who was kind of doing like the intake and kind of like, just kind of like seeing my story and, and whether or not he felt like, you know, or, or the, the staff felt like, you know, like, all right, this is gonna, this guy needs our help. And I, I felt like I was talking to a friend. Mm. You know, he was asking me all these questions about like my use and, and what my life looked like in Colorado. But then he also was like, so what kind of music do you like? Mm. Oh, you're a skier. Cool. What, what, like, tell me, what do you like to ski? And I was like, when are we supposed to be? Is this allowed? Yeah. And so I decided, you know, I said, I said yes to that. And so I was there for 30 days and I flew there with my dad and I was so freaked out. I got off the plane in, uh, in the twin cities. I, I could hardly stand up and he just put his hand on my shoulder and, and stood there with me until I was ready to, to walk. I was so scared, you know, cause I thought I was going to like lose a part of me. I also thought I was so scared to confront these, these demons within me. I didn't know what life was going to be like. Right. And I was mm-hmm. super scared at that. At least, you know, it's like, I knew what the pain and the suffering of, of active alcoholism and addiction looked like, you know, and it was brutal. And I felt like I was going to die, but I knew it. And there was, there's some comfort in that, you know, like it's mm-hmm. like a schedule of pain. I kind of understood it a little bit and I could, I, I had figured out, you know, kind of how to walk around in that schedule. Um, yeah. And with this, I was like, I don't know what is about to happen, you know, and I'd been drinking and using since I was 13 or 14 years old. But then it just, it like, when I was in treatment, it just, it, it like clicked. You know, I was hearing these stories that like, you know, like I wasn't saying these stories. I wasn't the, the one who was, who was talking about these things, but they all made sense. I, I understood what these people were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I came to, to understand was that like circumstances might be different, but our stories are all the same. You know, yeah. we're all, we're all in this because of the same thing. And, and honestly, it was like a relief. It felt like a relief. And I started to like, it's like when the light got like started to come in, you know, it's like, it's like that moment on the couch at my, at my house admitting, you know, finally. And then like a little bit of like work in the treatment facility. And it's like, okay, the light's getting in here and I'm starting to feel better a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it again, saved my life. Yeah. So then going from treatment um, I'm just thinking of like trajectory, mm-hmm. where you go next and what that looks like. So do you go back to Telluride? Are you back in Chicago? What's next? Well, I was, th- I was thinking that, you know, I was like, Oh, I gotta, you know, cause at the time I was, I was uh, ski patrolling in Telluride mm-hmm. and I was like, I gotta get back for refresher. My certs are gonna expire. I gotta like keep up with that. And one of the, the, the guys who I was at the retreat, the treatment facility was like, yeah, you can't ski if you're fucking dead, man. And I was like, oh, okay, okay, cool, cool, cool. Right, right, right. <laughs> that registers, um, okay. <laughs> yeah, and and so I agreed to go to sober living. So I lived in a sober house for about 15 months mm. afterwards. And then after that, I moved in with another sober guy on downtown St. Paul. And I lived in St. Paul for a little bit over two years, kind of learning how to live life in recovery and, and, and kind of like with a lot of help from others, like building this kind of like new foundation for life. And then from there, I got a job in Boulder. So I moved to Denver 
And that's mm-hmm. when I came back to Colorado. And then from, from there, I, uh, I went to freelance and uh, I moved to the little itty bitty, lovely hamlet of Carbondale, Colorado. And uh, that's where I live now. Wow. My gosh. Well, I'm so glad that you're here with us, Patty. Because <laughs> you bring a lot of joy to a lot of different people. I remember after oh, our initial conversation, I was like, wow, this guy is like a character, but... <laughs> he's also like incredibly thoughtful and introspective and, and you don't really get like both sides of the spectrum in a lot of people. So I am a, I am an emotional onion. (laughs) So many letters. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously like, you know, we're, we're kind of like breezing past seven years of of sobriety or recovery and there's a lot there. Right. Yeah. And you know, if you have any examples of maybe like times in which uh, it was it was really challenging or there was moments where you're like really feeling you're going back to alcohol or drugs. Love to hear that. You know, I, I one of the things I noticed like in in treatment was like, you know, the desire for for booze and drugs. Right. was kind of like, thank goodness, because I again, I know this isn't the case with everyone, but it was kind of like poof, kind of like lifted. Right. Mm. I mean, there was like, uh, you know, like, like, so I had some like using dreams and I was like, Oh shit, is this okay? And everybody was like, yeah, dude, that's okay. I was, like, okay. <laughs> right? I was on the treadmill and I was like running. Right. And the, the little like basement gym that they had. And, uh, I was like, Oh, after this workout, like a course would be really good. And I was like, Oh, holy shit. You know, like I can't, I'm supposed to be in treatment and in recovery now. Like I'm not, I'm not supposed to think like that. And again, I asked and they were like, yeah, it's okay. Like to have these thoughts, man. It's like, you know, what do you do with the second thought? What do you do with the first action? That's kind of like what matters. You're talking about it. You got freaked out and now you're talking about it. That's a good thing. Keep doing that. And then like, you know, when I was living in uh, the sober house, I kind of remember, I I remember waking up one day and I was kind of like looking around. I was like, huh, I feel kind of different. And I'd realized that like for like five days, I had just like felt okay. I wasn't like through the roof. I wasn't at the bottom of the dumps. Right. But I was just kind of like, okay. And I was like, oh, oh, this, I like this. Like, I like feeling okay. I think that's where I like, I try and want to like be at right. This like contentment. Right. Mm. But there was also things like at around like 90 days. Right. I was I I had joined a sober softball team uh, in this league that had been around in the Twin Cities for like 40 years or something. It was awesome. Mm. Nothing but sober dudes and, and, and sober gals in this thing. And it was so awesome to be around in it. And uh, we were in the championship game. <laughs> and I and I bases got, were loaded. Oh, bases. <laughs> but it was like I got taken out of the game. Cause I just, I wasn't, it wasn't my day. Right. I was playing poorly. Mm. And in my head, you guys don't know who the hell I am, man. Like I'm again, <laughs> I was a D one athlete in college. I, I was a ski patroller for crying. I, you know, I learned how to ski on my own, blah, blah, blah. You know, all this like ego shit. Right. Yeah. So I left the game. I left like, and, and I went to like the LA fitness that I had joined and I jumped on the treadmill and I, I was like, like I used to drink at people, like I would like fill a tumbler and I'd like, you know, these guys don't know me. And I, I would go in these delusions, these movies mm. had about all these resentments and, and these people who treated me wrong. Right. Well, I was running 
at my teammates, the guys who took me out of the game, right? I was on this treadmill. I ran like nine miles, something insane, you know, I was covered in sweat and I got off the treadmill and I was like, no one is here. Like they're not watching me. They don't know (laughs) anything about this. I've just like dehydrated myself, possibly pulled a hamstring and I'm freaked out. Right. Mm-hmm. So I call my, I call my mom and dad and I was just like, I don't think that like recovery is for me. Like, I don't think that drugs and alcohol are really my issue. What I think is that I'm crazy. I think that I have <sighs> a serious issue with my skull. And my mom was just like, sweetie, those are your emotions. They've been kind of dormant for a while. <laughs> Say hello to them and continue to talk about it. <laughs> you know, it's like, and that was, I love that your was mom. Oh, she's yes. She really is the best. And that was like a huge thing was like, you're going to be okay. But like I had numbed myself to life for so long. So my reactions to life is something as simple as like an ego shot of getting taken out of a softball game mm. could send me down the tubes. It's like, you know, I've got to right size myself within the world and learn how to react to things as a actual human participant in this thing that we call life, you know, (laughs) those were some things like early on and then kind of like slowly, but surely, you know, I was gaining some like self-confidence. I was like, you know, gaining some esteem through like esteemable acts and I felt good. And Mm. I was also surrounded by the twin cities have just a huge history of, of sobriety and recovery. And I was surrounded by these people who had tons of wisdom and, and not just that, but they had true, real joy in their eyes mm. and they weren't using and they weren't drinking and they were just plugged in and tapped into life. And I was like, I want that. And that yeah. for me has been like what recovery has been all about. It's like, how can I get tapped into life as unfiltered and as unadulterated as I possibly can? And then how can I help others get that too? Well, so how do you help others get that? I think things like this, you know, like I'm an advocate for recovery mm-hmm. and I, I love to talk to, you know, at, at, at both like the public and personal level, talk to people about recovery and why they should get into it. If they, you know, identify as a drug addict and alcoholic. And if people have questions, like I'm always open to discuss it with them. And I think that like, a lot of the times in, in media and stories, right. in film or just like anything really, like we always hear about like the hard shit because it's like, it's true and it's scary and it's brutal, you know, but like we, we often forget to focus on the turn and then what comes after the turn, because like with hope and action you can get to this life that where you're actually truly happy and joyous and honestly free. I think that Mm -hmm. that was the thing is that like I came in, to recovery, just kind of looking to like get a rest from yeah. these demons that wouldn't leave me alone. And what I really gained, luckily, was was true joy and true freedom. And so I think that like anytime I can talk about that and show that to people, like then then I'm helping out. Yeah. So besides um, obviously skiing, when you're like showing unadulterated <laughs> joy, shouting from the rooftop, if I hear yeah. a yodel here in Boulder, I'll realize it's coming probably from you <laughs> and <laughs> in Carbondale. You know, besides obviously that big mm-hmm. uh, part of your life, 
what other ways do you try to infuse joy into your life or that bring you like true joy? Chocolate? Don't. Yeah. You, you may have mentioned the chocolate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, big fan of pastries. Uh, yeah. my mustache. I don't know. I mean, like, I mean, every, everything, I mean, everything that it, from my old life I, I do now, except I'm, I'm not a chaotic drunken asshole while I'm doing it, you know, Bodie, this very loud, husky, you know, like infuses a lot of joy. And I think for me, you know, I I feel very lucky that like the things that I love to do in my personal life are also the things that I, I, I get to do in my professional life. You know, one of my favorite things in this world is to connect with people, make them think and more than anything, make them laugh. And I love doing that. And I had like as simple as going to the coffee shop and saying some stupid dad joke uh, while I'm ordering, you know, my vanilla latte or whatever it is, um, uh, to like, you know, articles I write or film productions I'm behind or podcasts or whatever it is, you know, like I just love to connect with people and make them laugh, you know? Mm. And, and I feel like to, to be able to do that on a personal level and a professional level, I, I feel very lucky. Other than that, I mean, any chance I can get outside and, and, and be in the mountains, this place that I love, doing the things that I love with the people that I love, that brings me immeasurable amount of joy. Mm. We kind of talked a little bit about how, you know, you went from, okay, drinking at someone to then running at someone. And that was like your first (laughs) realization of like changing up the toolkit and dealing with like human experiences. So what does the toolkit look like now? So, you know, if you have these sort of harder moments, whether it be with, you know, recovery or just in general as being a uh, a, a human man in this experience, what does that toolkit look like for you? Well, I found a community of people who... Uh, work at this thing daily. And I talk with them daily. They also identify as alcoholics and, and drug addicts. And I think in, in sharing of, of my thoughts and my story and listening to their thoughts and their story, I, I gained this huge sense of, of community and fellowship that I had always been looking for at the bottom of a bottle and the bottom of the baggie. Only this, this is like real and true and everlasting, whereas those things are kind of like fake and phony and fleeting. I continue to do what I did in the beginning, which is to wave the flag, ask for help, get honest and vulnerable. And I think that the three most dangerous words in the English language are, I got this. Mm. Um, I, I don't. It doesn't matter how much time I have. I'm never going to have a black belt in recovery ever. And I don't mm. want one. I want to continue to work at this thing every single day because today I'm, I'm feeling really good. I'm not ashamed of yesterday I'm, and I'm hopeful about tomorrow. Mm. Last time we talked, you said something that was, uh, I thought, very profound. So you said, I think we should be celebrating absolutely sending it into vulnerability like we do the courage of sending the NAR. So Uh I thought that was really beautiful when you said that. And I wrote it down like a good little note taker I am. And (laughs) so how do we kind of switch up the outdoor community? How do we infuse vulnerability in our, in our sports that we do or just getting outside in general? That's like the million dollar question, right? <laughs> and, and I, don't, I don't know. I think conversations like this surely help and people not being afraid to, to get honest and, and open. And it, and then it's also about like the community effort of like, you know, if you're going to scream and shout and, and get super psyched when, when you're, you know, 
pal does, you know, something insane off of a 20 foot cliff. Like you should also, you know, scream and shout and, and give attaboys and atta girls and, uh, and, and props to, you know, somebody for reaching out for help when they say, Hey, I, I can't get out of bed and I don't know why, or I'm having suicidal thoughts and, and I don't know what to do about it. Or I can't stop snorting cocaine and drinking whiskey. I need some help, mm. you know, like celebrating that, like we do any other kind of like physical achievement. Like we should also be celebrating those emotional achievements, those spiritual achievements as well. And, and I think, I mean, it starts with hopefully conversations like this, uh, but, th- but then conversations within your own friend group, you know, talk to your pals, say like, what are you actually thinking about? You know, mm-hmm. check on your friend who always seems like they're happy. Ask them what's really going on. You know, when somebody says, oh, I'm doing good, man. You know, that canned answer that we say, (laughs) say, all right, but like, how are you really doing? And then model the behavior that, that you hope to, to change, you know? Mm. As far as the industry in itself, I know that you're involved with doing more like sober or healthy. I think they're called happy hours at the, yeah. yeah. So do you think it's shifting in the industry in itself, like moving away from just being centered around alcohol and having other, you know, options for people who don't partake in that kind of stuff? I think kind of nationally it is. I think within our industry, it, it, it is as well. You know, like when I first started out, there wasn't any kind of like, you know, bubble water option you know, it was all booze there. And there wasn't anybody really talking about it really, you know, except for some, you know, magazine articles here and there, some books some really great books that were published by, you know, really great writers, but kind of like at, at, a, at some like, you know, outdoor retailer, you know, this huge trade show in our industry, you know, it was, it, and, and to a lot of still today, there's a lot of that, you know, kind of drinking culture. And not just drinking, but like kind of binge drinking. But I think that that is kind of losing steam a little bit. Because I, I don't know. I mean, the whole like, you know, kind of 1990s, like Mountain Dew, extreme, extreme bro kind of action adventure <laughs> guy is like, that's like, it's not that cool. You know, I don't know <laughs> if it really was. So hopefully I think that like the conversations like continue to become more of the norm. I think they are right now. I sure know a lot of folks who are, you know, in recovery or all along the sobriety spectrum, you know, mm-hmm. who are in the, the media space. So hopefully like that kind of becomes more of a, of a thing that's like out in the open, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. you know, again, it's like conversations like this really help. Yeah, man. So just, yeah, I'm just doing the real work here is what we're saying. <laughs> so. <laughs> The crown that you have for yourself is quite nice. Yeah. You can't see it in the audio media, but I'm wearing You should, you you know, I I think that you have to be commended for for something like this because it's, you know, it's not like, it's not the easiest to talk about. It's not the easiest thing to explore publicly, but it's needed, you know? Mm. I mean, all, and it's not just alcoholism and addiction. It's everything about mental health, you know? Right. The suicide rate in Mountain West is, absolutely out of control small mountain towns and and really all along the the mountain west i mean eight out of the ten states of the mountain west have the highest suicide rates three times higher the national per capita average that's insane yeah we need to talk about that on like like a daily basis you know and 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 do something you know expand the tools that and the ability for people to get help 
you know? Yeah. And, and so you're doing the, you're doing that work. So thank you. You're really hot and, and red. <laughs> <laughs> Cut that out. I think my computer's smoking. Oh I gotta go. No, I'm just kidding. Well, great. So I, I think there's a lot of progress to be made, but I, I do feel excited about all the people talking about mental health overall, not just like within the realms of sobriety and recovery and addiction, although yeah. obviously that's very uh, intertwined, but I feel excited about where the industry and the community is going. So speaking of books that you mentioned seven minutes ago, what books are on your nightstand right now? What are you currently reading? Oh my Lord. I have like (laughs) so so many. Are you a person Um, who would, let's see. So are you a person who reads many books at one time or you have to commit to one book at a time? I am a person who likes to think that they commit to anything. (laughs) at one time but he does a great job of committing to a lot of things and then doesn't finish jack shit no i just finished uh between the world and me and white fragility i've got the latest powder the latest free skier and the latest adventure journal on my nightstand i've got a book that i gave to my dad for his birthday or Christmas a few years back about the 10th mountain division Mm. uh, that he gave to me to read because he liked it. I've got a few, a few novels I've got. Oh, I've, I've started like several like out outdoorsy books, kind of like uh, nonfiction books that I'm like, you know, 60 to 90 pages in like three different (laughs) ones, you know, same, same. Um, I've got like (laughs) too many tabs open on my computer of articles, (laughs) like online articles to read that are probably slowing down my goddamn Wi-Fi. It's too much. much. And I also have like all these things on my to watch list too. Yes. There's not enough time in the day to ingest all the, the things yeah. that I want to, I, want to I know. I get, I don't know if you do this as well. I, I don't know if you use the library in Carbondale, um, but I, I'm a big like fan of the library. And can you be a fan of the library? But anyways, I, I am. So. You can be. Yes, yeah, thank you. And I always like, hear like some recommendations. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to hold that one. I'm going to hold that one. And then I get like five at a time. And I'm like, yeah. shit. I overcommitted. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I, it's, uh, I, I feel like the, the reason why I shy away from the library and I just buy books, you know, these little mini, mini trophies I keep like in my, in my house is so that I can like, I can like uh, rid myself of the public shaming of like these librarians <laughs> of like, you're going to take this out again. Why don't you just read it? And like, listen, John or Jan Dolores or whoever you are like, ah, come on. Like, you know, <laughs> cool. Well, so you're reading way too much, but you're yeah. reading a lot. Are there any books that really helped you when you were first in recovery or that have come out like in the recent years that have helped you around like sobriety, addiction, recovery? Anything that Brendan Leonard writes, um, totally. 60 meters, 60 meters to anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually at five point here in Carbondale before I lived here. Uh, it was like the, the festival that really like, you know, I'd been to town before, but it was like, okay, I'm moving to this place. Mm. But, um, he gave a presentation on, on the book. He was like, as part of his, his book tour for it, I met him and his, uh, his, his now wife, Hillary, who is also a fabulous creative and writer herself. And it was like right around three years in to recovery. It was like reading the book was great, but it was more like what 
happened at that festival with Brendan. You know, I, I kind of felt like I was like, you know, kind of fresh into freelancing and I was really trying to break in. He wrote like, you know, happy three years and like keep at it or something like that in the book. I bought it. And then later he was talking with Stacy bear. He was like, Hey Patty. And I was like, Oh, Hey man, like you remember my name? Holy <laughs> shit. And he was like, come over here. And Stacy is also a sober guy. Brendan's a sober guy. And it was just like the three of us sitting there chatting about fun adventures in the outdoors. It, I just felt like invited in and then reading the book was incredible. And then after that, Stacy and I had an incredibly loud and inappropriate conversation that was strewn <laughs> with just, it was peppered with poop jokes and it was incredibly inappropriate. <laughs> and I was like, well, this is fun. You're like, um, I feel seen here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, and since then, Brennan has become like a very close friend of mine, been a great guy to like, you know, just go get like, uh, you know, pancakes with. And, mm. and shoot the shit, but also talk about this world of, of freelancing and outdoor media. That book is just incredible. Anything he writes or creates, I think like, yes, everyone on this planet should read anything that Steve Casimiro has touched. He's the, the El Jefe of adventure journal. The guy is just, it's like, he's operating at a different level. It's just <laughs> So I'd say, I'd say those, those two guys probably. Yeah. The most. Yeah. So we'll check out Steve as well. And we'll put those in the show notes so people can go check them out. Okay. Right last question, Patty. Oh you ready? Boy. So you've given a lot of great advice throughout this whole thing. So this oh, is... Oh, I have? <laughs> I think you have. So for someone who is going through their version of addiction or just questioning yeah. their lifestyle, maybe what's the first piece of advice that you would give to them if they came to you with that? This is a, this is this is like what superhero do you want to be? This is a hard one. Um, but I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna say what my buddy Max told me, like right when I got out of treatment, and he's another sober guy and super smart guy and thoughtful. He said, uh, "My mind is a dangerous place. I dare not go in there alone." And I think the thing about addiction and alcoholism is that, and this is very true for me, is that we have this idea that we're, we're our lives and the way that we go through life, we're terminally unique. Nobody could possibly understand what is happening inside of us, what's happening outside of us, or the circumstances of our lives, no one has ever had to deal with. And it's just not true. It's a lie that we tell ourselves to keep ourselves sick. What that really leads to is that like everything in life, including recovery, life and recovery are team sports. And, and you need a huge one to be successful. And the more honest, the more open, the more vulnerable that you can be, the more that you can challenge this idea that because I'm feeling something and because I'm thinking something that it makes it real, that it is reality. The more you can fact check your thoughts, the better off you're going to be. I would, I would tell that person that. And I would also say that recovery is the fucking shit. It is the <laughs> hardest thing to do. It gets less hard, you know, more than good or bad. It's going to be different. And, mm -hmm. and that's, I always think that's, that's like a positive in life, you know, but like, you know, I was so worried when I was getting, uh, when I was first starting out that I was losing something, I was losing my identity. I was known as party Patty, you know, and like mm -hmm. the party was over. It had been over. Yeah. Right. And, uh, but I was still, I was so worried I was going to lose my identity. 
And it's just not true. Again, it's a lie. It's the lie that we tell ourselves to keep ourselves like sick. And if you've ever had an unadulterated, unfiltered, fully connected powder day, no drugs, no booze, no hangover, just you, the mountain, the snow, all blurring lines together to form this weird, wonderfully romantic, poetic dance of frosty joy explosions in your head, your heart, your gut, your quads, everything. You're fully connected to everything around you and free of everything all at the same time. There is not a single drug or a single drink that can come close to a feeling like that. And I can speak like, I mean, I've done some extensive research in this area. I know what I'm talking about here, you know, like those moments are incredible and exceptional, but like, what's really great about this whole thing is like today I wake up and I'm like, I'm okay. I know that I'm okay. And, and you just can't beat that. You just can't beat that. Well, that's beautiful. So where... That's not one thing, by the way. That's the most Chicago Irish answer of all time. Do you have one thing to say? <laughs> well, I do. Do you have 20 but hours for me to tell you? <laughs> I have about 25 minutes. Why don't you sit down, pour yourself a cup of coffee, relax here. <laughs> I'll be here a while. <laughs> well, where can people catch up with you? If they want to like stay in tune with what Patty's up to, as well as like writings that you have out there in the universe, where can they catch up with you? Well, probably easiest is, is Instagram. And that's just P-A-D-D-Y-R-O-C. That's my handle. Find me on the interwebs. <laughs> and, and hopefully, hopefully on, on a mountain near you. If you see a mustache, a six foot five mustache screaming, uh, come say hi. Yodeling. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Patty. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Emily. This has been awesome. And, and again, thank you very much for, for making this, uh, making this show. I think it's super important and, uh, I think you're going to help some people. Ooh, Patty O'Connell. What a treasure. Honestly, I mean, he's just a great dude. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Patty. Very vulnerable. And I really appreciated that about our conversation. The main piece of the discussion with Patty that I really had sticking with me the days after our conversation, the idea of just having eruptions of unadulterated joy. I know I said it in the intro, we talk a little bit about it in the conversation, but I just want to bring that into everything that I'm doing. It's a great reminder, especially as we go into sort of a, a scary season of you know, life and changes and things coming up for us. And I think that is just such a good reminder that joy can bubble up and come through and you should let it, you should let it come through. The other thing that I found really interesting that we were talking about was having those moments of celebration for the emotional and spiritual achievements of your friends, your family, your partner, whoever. And I think that's really beautiful and something I'm going to try to infuse in my everyday life is how do I help to support my friends and family when they're working through something really challenging for them mentally. And I see them getting better at it. I see them improving on it. You know, how can I do that? And then also 
individually for myself, how can I make sure that I'm celebrating those milestones as well, you know, through the work of therapy or through the work of sobriety, you know, how am I celebrating my own spiritual and emotional achievements? So just a lot to think about and and work through. And I think that Patty was was such a force in having this conversation. So I want to thank him again for his time. He's on Instagram at Patty Rock. And I highly recommend that. There's a lot of giggles that come out of following him. And I share almost everything that he posts because it's all hilarious or really meaningful. So go take a look at that. And thanks really for continuing to be here. We really appreciate you. And I say we, but it's really just me. I'm over here just doing my thing, you know, but I couldn't do it without you guys. And I also couldn't do it without guests being willing to share their stories. So I'm just really excited about this project. And we have so many amazing conversations that can be had. I'm just so excited to continue to share those and and to continue to destigmatize this conversation. So if you want to catch up with us, it's Nature Untold Podcast on Instagram. We have a Facebook group as well, Nature Untold Podcast as well. And if you want to help out even further, you can leave us a review on iTunes. That is super helpful. So please go ahead and do that if you have a moment. Thanks again. And we'll see you next time.